I have actually um, preached on Galatians 6 one other time. And it was probably within a year or two after I came here, I was doing a topical series called The Harvest. And I was looking at harvest metaphors throughout the Bible. And I remember struggling so much with this same text at that time that I got up Sunday morning and I preached my one and only sermon I've ever preached without notes. Because <laughs> I just came to Saturday night and I felt like everything I had written was not what the Lord wanted to say. And so I guess I was so stubborn yesterday that I said to myself, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what it is with this text, why I wrestle with it so much. I have learned, though, over the years, whenever I do wrestle with a text, it's probably because I'm not following my own maxim, my own belief, that every page of the Bible is about Jesus. So I sat down yesterday and I started charting out kind of what you see in your bulletins, writing down the themes and teaching points I already knew about the text. But then I asked myself something I hadn't asked myself throughout the week was, what does this text say about Jesus? How does it remind us of Jesus? And I guess what gets me about this text too is that it feels a little bit disconnected from the rest of Galatians. It feels like somewhat of a to-do list. It's as if Paul is saying, and a few things after I've bashed you in the head for five chapters about legalism, here's a few good things to do. Now, early on in my studies, I did make connections to prior chapters. And another thing is that some of these things Paul says back to back almost feels like they're disconnected thoughts. <laughs> and they could maybe merit their own sermon, sermonettes and sermons. But I, I still believe the Holy Spirit was just wanting to wage a little war with me. <laughs> and so as also, as I said previously, I, I did preach this text in a broader series called The Harvest because we do hear ideas about sowing and reaping in the text. What I fear is that sometimes we open up to a Bible and we like to find texts or lists and then we dismiss Forget, minimize, make some assumptions about things. You know, have you ever had an heirloom or a souvenir that uh, stories in your own families or your homes? I remember the joke of a man seeing his wife chop off the ends of a ham steak before she cooked it. And the man asks, why are you doing that? The wife says, I don't know, my mom did it. So the next time they see the wife's mom, they ask her the same question. To what she responds, I don't know, my mother did it. Thankfully, grandmother is still living. And so they went to go ask her to what she responds, I didn't own a pan big enough for the ham steaks we had, so I always had to chop off the ends. That's a funny joke. But we have sometimes those more touching souvenir memory tokens lying around the house. We always do that because this, right? Maybe it's a holiday tradition that's always done because it reminds you of someone. Or we always have tacos on Tuesday. Or we always read the Christmas story out of Luke 2 on Christmas Eve, and that's the only time I will read the King James. <laughs> Things like that. And I feel like that I'm not adding to the Scriptures whenever I say Galatians 6, 1-10 through 10 
needs to be that for me because it needs to be more than just a list. It has a culture, a milieu behind it. It has the Spirit of God under it, which we believe the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Scriptures. So that's my introduction. I do invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's Word. I'm going to use the Christian Standard Bible this Sunday just for some wording preferences that I enjoyed in Galatians 6, 1 through 10. So, the CSB, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, I don't know, maybe 90% of my problems are my over-analytical brain. Whatever the reason I struggle with this passage and whatever the message I wrote down last night, I just pray that it would be your words and not mine. I ask that we would hear your voice, that we would respond as you would have us respond, that anything and everything you call us to do in this passage, we would realize it's not beyond our reach, but through the Holy Spirit we can accomplish each and everything you call us to do. Father, I pray that these would be action words, that people would respond actively, uh, that it would be more than just a time where we nod our heads and say good message and now what do I got to do now? in terms of what's next on my schedule. Father, disrupt our schedules and speak to us. Help us to be more like Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit to do that. And thank you that you died for us so that we can be like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you read the facing bench... A few newsletters ago, I know this will shock you, but I wrote an article entitled Ode to Autumn. I explored the many reasons as to why I might like autumn, but in, in it, I did bring up a passage that's also in your outline. I call it the frame of the entire of this sermon. And it's John's telling of Jesus' triumphal entry. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, he's got the town in an uproar. They're saying things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And and we live removed from that culture and those idioms. And we just might say, oh, it's a nice church service. And the reality is, is oh, they want to incite war. Because Hosanna means 
Save us now. And blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord is a reference to another psalm about the Messiah. And the Messiah then was a believed to be warrior and king that would indeed lead Israel back into power. And they were conquered by the Romans during this time. So it's not just a church service. It's It might turn into a riot if things don't calm down. And it's why some people even take Jesus aside and say basically, hey, Rabbi, you're just a preacher or a teacher. Tell your disciples to pipe down a little bit. That's my lame paraphrase of Luke 19.39. But we do know from the Gospel accounts that despite outrageous jealousy that those people who pulled Jesus aside had, they also feared for their safety and the safety of Israel. Should the people declare Jesus their Messiah? Jesus knows why He's in Jerusalem though. He's not there to save Israel. He's there to die. To die for the sins of the world. And in Jesus' economy, suffering is redemptive. Dying is beautiful. In Jesus' economy, autumn gets its meaning. The reason why autumn is beautiful is because of Jesus. The reason why dead things look beautiful is because of Jesus. Jesus says, as John records on this day, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus knows that He's going to die, and He's saying that the only way it produces much fruit if it's planted into the earth, if He dies, and just how when a seed is planted and it sprouts out and turns into whatever it turns into, tree, tree, plant, vine, fruit. So Jesus goes into the earth. He resurrects and His movement begins to spread. He produces much fruit. Wheat falling, seed planting, fruit producing. Now over here in Galatians 3, it's not until verse 7, but there is this imagery of harvest, of sowing and reaping. But I believe it is this first fruit, Jesus, that undergirds it all. That is the the flower bed for all. In uh, this passage of Galatians, we will hear of sowing towards repentance, sowing responsibly, sowing to reap, and sowing righteousness. In the first two verses, we'll hear of sowing towards repentance. We hear again, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken... And any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, think about that in relations to the fruit of the Spirit, a few verses prior, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, the same word for gentleness and fruit of the Spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. First and foremost, I missed it until yesterday. The gospel is in those two verses. We were overtaken in wrongdoing. He, Jesus, is the Spirit, is God incarnate. He came down with gentle spirit. He was tempted like we were, but He watched Himself so He did not sin. He carried our burdens. In fact, the Apostle Peter writes, He Himself bore, other translations will say, bear one another's burdens, bore our sins in His body on the tree, so that having 
died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, restored. He has restored us when we were overtaken by wrongdoing. And we know this, and because we know this, I am floored when I or when anybody ever comes to this place in our faith where we might think that we've blown it and we've blown it for good. Oh, I'm past redemption this time. I'm un, it's unforgivable this time. That's the gospel when we were really were unforgivable so that God became flesh and saved us. He restored us. He carried our burdens. Isaiah says, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains that we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punishment for our peace was on Him, and we are healed by His wounds. So the least we could do is act likewise towards one another. Help one another repent and have the gentle spirit. Again, the, the fruit, exact same word as the fruit. You who are spiritual... Back in Galatians 5.1. Well, Paul is talking about an elite class of Christian. No, he's not. But he is talking about, again, in relation to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. People who are maturing in the faith, looking more like Jesus. You who are spiritual. Quakers love to use the term weighty friends. And they're not talking about friends who need to go on a diet, but... No one has it all together, but people who look like and seem like and act like, they're getting this Christian thing down. And with gentle spirit, we one must come alongside those who are overtaken by wrongdoing, by sin. They need accountability. Friends, if any of you are in sin today, if any of you have problems Today, if any of you need help today, then this is an urge. Seek someone to help you. Seek someone to help you because you do not have to be going through that alone. Jesus bore your sins on the tree. He died for you. But when you and I mess up and are being overtaken by wrongdoing, we still have the body of Christ, His church, to lean on. Carry one another's burdens. In this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law that says to love God and love people. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to know this, friend. If you're sinning, you are not alone. God has not abandoned you. And when you confess to one another, His people will not abandon you. But what if the person I confess to judges me? Right? What if they're mortified that I, of all people, I'm one of those sinners, and I attend their church? Paul actually addresses that in this passage. First, he said in verse 1 that the person who comes alongside to keep the other accountable, to help the one being overtaken in wrongdoing, that they ought to be watching out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Now, here's how I used to take that. And I was confused because I took it this way. I used to think, I don't get it, Paul, because 
Here's what I'm thinking. Paul's warning about being tempted with the same sin. And that didn't resonate with me. Suppose an alcoholic approaches me and says, Brother Kevin, I need you to help keep me accountable. And I just don't see myself being prone to go, okay, check in with me, let's remove all your beer, and then all of a sudden I'm going to start thinking, huh, I think getting blasted out of my mind with alcohol sounds like a good idea. It's working for this guy. Or, you know, insert whatever sin you might be helping someone out with right there. I'm more likely to think that a front row seat to someone's train wrecks will do everything but tempt me to partake in it. Paul's talking about being tempted though, but not being tempted with the same sin. He's probably talking about being tempted with the sins of religiosity, the sins the Galatian law-loving teachers had. Because look at Paul's focus here by verse 3. For if anyone considers himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here's what I'm thinking. At least what one of my commentaries was thinking and I agreed with, so now I can say here's what I'm thinking. Some can get tempted to sin when holding someone else accountable by having a big head. Right? Those people who say, holy cow, you sin that way? How do you live with yourself? You call yourself a Christian. Christ gave you the power to put that sin to sleep. You converted, but here you are still sinning like a sailor. Holy cow, buddy. Put a lid on it. You know what? What did Todd read for us? Someone approached Jesus to ask him how to be saved, and he called him good teacher. Listen to how Jesus responded. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except for God alone. Did you catch that? Why do you call me good, says Jesus? It's an alarming statement, considering what we teach about Jesus. Being God and perfect and absolutely righteous and without sin, to quote the Bible in Hebrews 4.15. Why is someone without sin asking why he was just called good? Perhaps it's a demonstration of his goodness that he wasn't prideful enough to declare it. The point being, if we are called to hold others accountable, the first thing we do is not mull over how sinful the one we're helping out is, but rather how sinful we have been, how we are, how we need, how we need grace to take the role of a restorer in this time. There is still room for celebration. Paul says in verse 4, let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. Perhaps we might be approached to help someone because we've conquered, by God's grace, some of our own demons. But it should make us more understanding, more loving, more sympathetic when someone shows up with their demons and says, I can't do this alone. See, I'm not going to compare what they're going through with what I'm going through. <clears throat> and I'm not going to say, that's, you know, that's, that's worse. You should have conquered that a long time ago. <laughs> Rather, Paul says in verse five, for each person will have to carry his own load, right? It seems like we all have our own sins to wrestle with, besetting sins. So while you conquered maybe the demons of this set of sins, maybe addictions, alcohol, and drugs, and were tempted by that, when someone gets a hold of you and says, man, i got a lusting problem, you got to keep me accountable, I can't do this without you, don't be like, well, I never had that problem, that's in a whole other category, you got serious issues. I just had semi-serious issues. No, you, 
you didn't wrestle with what he wrestles with, and he didn't wrestle with what you wrestle with, but you could identify with being overtaken by wrongdoing. And you can, with gentle spirit, keep them accountable. Sowing responsibly. Knowing your place. Nobody's good but God. So you don't have the master's degree on super holiness and you can't lord over people. Instead of having a master's degree on super holiness, we all get our own loads, our own problems to wrestle with. The beautiful thing is, is that Jesus died for your sin. And the beautiful thing is, is as Paul said in the previous chapter of Galatians 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's the way out. Now, it's a rocky way out, and it's why you and I, sometimes we need people to help carry our burdens, but there is a way out by the Spirit. It's not by the law. (laughs) What's going to save us from the wrongdoings that overtake us isn't going to be the law. Your advice, if you ever keep someone accountable, shouldn't be, well, have you read 15 chapters of Exodus today? How long have you been praying Now, how's the bacon habit going? Are you not eating it? Don't eat any ham right now. No. But it can be. What did Jesus say to you today? How are the temptations going? Did the Lord use His Word to help you resist His day? But we don't need to take the look of the law. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the beauty. That's that's the way out. We have our accountability, friends. But the way out of the wrongdoings that overtake, overtake us is not more rigorous law. It's an easy yoke and a light burden. And you might be saying, if it's so easy to get out of my sins, then why is it so problematic? Why is it so complex? Why is there such a struggle? Just because something is easy doesn't mean it won't be hard. You're like, that doesn't make sense. You ever try to take a vacation? How can resting and relaxing being so hard? Things to do. And what if they need me? And what if I miss out on something? And what if it's still an easy way out, though? Now here's what I think I was being thrown for a huge loop by. Here's why Galatians 6 was just falling apart for me. Because out of nowhere, now follow the logic with me. Paul's been saying basically, when people struggle with sin, get accountability. And if you're giving giving accountability, don't get all self-righteous like Pharisees. Remember your own sins. We all have sins that have tripped us up. And then out of nowhere it feels like Paul then says verse 6, Let the one who has taught the Word share all good things with the teacher. What? To me, it sounded like water is transparent and clear. It comes from clouds. It collects in puddles, lakes, rivers, and oceans. It evaporates. I like hamburgers. That's just kind of the logic for me. What is this? It could be that Paul was writing down a list of some connected and some not so connected things. Now, I've managed to, I don't know how completely I'm happy with my decision, but I've managed to put this under the umbrella of sowing responsibly. We have personal responsibility in our lives to know our humble station. We're not better than the people we might be called to hold accountable. 
We need to responsibly own our sins and deal with the fights we have. We need to responsibly help those who help us in the Word. Does that make sense? That's the way I logicked it out. I just made that word logicked. I'm not saying it's the best logic, but I think all of the commentators I've read do believe that Paul is making a quick statement about compensating spiritual teachers in the pastoral sense. Paul was helped at times from offerings. The the Levites and the Old Testament Israel received food and the like from those under them. So Paul could be saying, yeah, responsibly keep each other accountable. Responsibly keep the spiritual nurturers over you released and freed up economically so that they might continue to help you grow. Does that make sense? But then we're going to move to this idea of sowing to reap. We've talked about sowing towards repentance, sowing responsibly, and now sowing to reap. We read and you're going to see that wonderful connection to the previous verse. Okay, maybe not. We're going to say, share good things with the teacher to verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. First of all, here's what the Galatians did. They heard of Christ, likely accepted Him, became Christians, and they were slowly being sucked into this law-loving paradigm, the paradigm that said, sure, Jesus forgives you, but also be sure to keep the law that also saves you. And they they headed down paths which leads to what Paul said in chapter 5, biting and devouring one another, verse 15 of chapter 5, or being conceited and provoking and envying one another, verse 26 of chapter 5. And Paul is saying, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. And I believe the point is this. Salvation is not fire insurance. It's not a ticket we get find a seat on the proverbial train, and then do whatever we want to along the way. I mean, Jesus was God incarnate. He was without sin. He had an entirely clean slate. So did He play it safe when He he was on earth, or did He say, I can do whatever I want, I'm God? John 5.19 tells us, Jesus said, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on His own but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Can I just admit that sometimes in the back of my mind, maybe I'm even still being too conservative when I say sometimes, I still have this sinful paradigm that wonders, what can I get away with? Where's the limit? Will God ever disown me? And Jesus has a whole different paradigm. He doesn't doesn't even enter into his brains, what can I get away with? No, he flips it entirely and he says, what's the Father doing? That's what I will be doing. Do you ever think that? An honest question. What is the Father doing? What would he have me be doing right now? Let's be honest. No, I don't think that because it sounds boring. It's not tantalizing. It's not adventurous. I sometimes imagine old men, dusty books, headaches while trying to read the Bible, churchy stuff. No, I don't, I don't think that. First off, the enemy has won if he's ever made you think that what the Father is doing is boring. 
Not only did the Father become flesh, walk the earth, save billions of lives, walk on water, healed people, fed people, loved people, but He's left the very power of Himself with us. And He said, you'll do greater things. Oh, what is the Father doing? He's not nodding off in a Bible study, I can tell you that. And if you think that, and if I think, I got better things that I want to be doing, Paul would warn us, for whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. It's pretty easy logic. If we live into our passions. You know, over in Ephesians 2-3, there Paul says, We all previously lived in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath. Fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And I have to say that we live in a culture where this sort of thinking is at its core. If it's okay and if it's not hurting anyone, do it. Don't let anyone tell you what you can't do. Release your inhibitions. Think it, do it. And we serve a God who loves us enough to say, you know... There's damage done on levels you don't realize. The things you do now can hurt you down the road, and these sins lead to death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. This phrase right here primarily, and there was another phrase that was likewise, is is what led me to select a different translation today. The BSB puts a word in there that's not in the original language, and says, the one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And I don't know if I like that please. Notwithstanding the fact that the word isn't there in the Greek, but what Paul is saying to me sounds like it might be something slightly different than just pleasing the Spirit. As if I'm living to just please Him in a way that suggests, well, i gotta got to please the Holy Spirit here, so here I go. <laughs> Which might be our consideration. But I just happen to believe that what Christ does in a person takes it deeper than that. I think when we walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit, it's a more natural thing to just live to please the Spirit. We're living by the Spirit. I like what one commentator says. He says, the one who sows to the Spirit is one who satisfies their desires and propensities by living in the Spirit. It reminds me of Psalm 37, verse 4, which says, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you your heart's desires. And we've mentioned this here before. This isn't a genie in a bottle verse. You do this, God's going to give you all your wishes. No, what's important about that verse is the action being described in the first part. Take delight in the Lord. Adore Him. Think of Him, know Him, take pleasure in Him. Consider it a joy and an excitement to get to know Him. And as this worship and this adoration and this delighting in Him grows, God's going to literally give you the desires of your heart. He's not going to fulfill or grant fleshly desires. He's going to give you new desires that line up with His will. From the heart, you'll want to serve Him. And taking delight in Him... It's not like taking delight in something the world offers, wherein the wells run dry, 
But delighting in God is living water that never runs dry. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Jesus sowed to the Spirit entirely. He did entirely what the Spirit wanted Him to do, even when death was part of that road. We read it last week in the garden. He says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. You know, He's doing what the Father is doing, and that's not a half-asleep old man surrounded by dusty books, falling asleep reading a Bible. That's sowing by the Spirit. And it is because Jesus sowed by the Spirit, He reaped eternal life for everyone. What are you sowing? Are you sowing to reap? Paul has talked about sowing towards repentance. Accountability. We all have sins and struggles, and the body is here to help walk alongside us as the Spirit is. Paul has talked about sowing responsibly. Knowing our station, no one's better than the other. We're all sinners. We we all have our different besetting sins and problems. And we all have each other in the Holy Spirit to help us in our walk. Paul has talked about sowing to reap. You sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. You sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life. You'll conquer sin. And now Paul ends this chunk of Scripture with a command to sow righteousness. He says, let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Did you know that God is a giver? At the heart of who He is, He is a giver. If you think about it, He was entirely satisfied without the world. He didn't need to make the universe. Paul says in the city of Athens, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. Hear that description? As though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. You know, you ask some people, why do you have kids? Well, I've wanted a boy, or I've wanted a girl, or I want to keep the name alive. I want, I want, I want. God, why did you make the world? It's not in his vocabulary to answer that question with anything remotely related to I want. God is entirely satisfied with himself. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been having a wonderful community of love and satisfaction for eternity. At the heart of God, Paul said in Athens, was the one who gives everyone life and breath in all things. He's a giver, not a wanter, not a taker. Jesus says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God is a giver. He gives everyone life, breath, and all things. He gives His Son to die for our sins. He gives, He gives, He gives. So it only makes sense that His body should not tire of doing good. Giving ourselves. Paul even leans into self-interest in this command. Because if we keep giving, he says, we will reap at the proper time. I'm reminded of that same moment where Jesus answered memorably to the rich young ruler, only my Father is good. Do you remember 
what that occasion was about? I hope you do, because if you don't, you have a bad memory. The rich young ruler had asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, I've kept all those commandments. And what did Jesus urge him on? Same thing we're talking about. Generosity. Go and give all that you have. He couldn't do that. The cost was too high. But is the cost really that high? Is it really tiring to keep doing good? What will we reap at the proper time? Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. Do you hear that? The present reality? Now, at this time, we'll talk about that, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, let's throw that in there and be honest, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I believe this is both a present and a future fulfillment because what you have in this body and in the church universal are houses to fellowship at, to stay at, brothers and sisters in Christ to walk through life with you, mothers for those who didn't have mothers, fathers for those who didn't have fathers, children to love on and raise. God is a giver and He wants His people to be givers. So where are you sowing? You know, as Paul was maybe writing this letter, maybe it was his time of, of harvest. I don't know why he's got harvest on the mind, reaping, sowing. Jesus sums up his life, his ministry, like a wheat that falls to the ground and dies and producing fruit when it dies. Are you sowing towards repentance? Jesus restored us. Are you continuing to restore others when they need it? Are you sowing responsibly? Are you knowing your station? Are you knowing that no one's good? We all need each other. We can all truly succeed at repenting with the easy yoke and the light burden that Jesus offers by living by His Spirit? Are you sowing to reap? Are you sowing where the Father will have you? Are you willing to sow where the Father will have you even to the point of death? Because do you trust the cost is worth it to sow righteousness? To not tire of doing good, working for the good of all, for the family of Christ? That's the harvest we, the church, get to partake in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I I do love that you use symbols and things that are easily relatable whenever you teach. Father, I love that Jesus used parables of things that everybody was familiar with. Paul is using an image that, especially in that society, was very familiar with. So help us whenever we see people bringing in the harvest. Help us to ask ourselves, what harvest am I going to bring in? What harvest is my family bringing in? What harvest is my church bringing in? What harvest is the kingdom of God bringing in? And I'm a part of that kingdom. Where, Lord Jesus, where would you have me be a farmhand? What would you have me to do? Help us to have the audacity to, to live like Jesus, to do and to go wherever the Father is. Father, help us to ask ourselves, what, what is the Father doing right now? What do I need to be doing? Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you gave us the power to not only ask that, but then to fulfill it. So help us, Lord Jesus. It's a sobering thought. Help us to have that thought throughout the week. What is the Father doing? What can I be doing? 
Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.